Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ezra, chapter 2. Ezra comes after Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles in your Old Testament. The book of Ezra, chapter 2. I said a few weeks ago that we would be back and forth a few times in the month of May between Ezra and Matthew, and so we are back in Ezra this Sunday. Before I pray or do anything else, I would like to give you a moment to just skim over today's passage. Look with me at Ezra chapter 2. Just skim over it if you have a moment. We're going to try to make it down to verse 67 today. I hear laughter right now. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. So uh, this may be one of the reasons when people are thinking about books to preach through, they see Ezra, like, this looks good, and then they see chapter 2, and they go, what what am I going to do with a list of names? So we will get to that in just a moment. Instead, I was originally going to read the whole passage through at once, but I'm instead going to break it into parts and just talk about it as we go. I thought that would be a better way to manage this, unless we'd be overwhelmed by all these hard-to-pronounce names. And if you're wondering if I'm pronouncing a name incorrectly, the answer is I probably am, okay? I'm just going to say it with confidence, and we'll see what happens with the names. So let me pray for us, and then we will, we will dive in. Heavenly Father, uh, as Paul wrote... 2 Timothy 3.16, and we believe it sincerely, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It is useful for teaching, for reproof and correction, and that we might walk in the way of righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, competent for every good work. So God, I pray today... As we look at a text that does not immediately jump off the page with a sense of relevancy or application, God, I pray that you would show us that even Ezra 2, with a list of names of the returnees from exile, uh, is indeed God-breathed and profitable for us in the year 2023. So God, I pray that you would use this time in your word, encourage us with it, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I thought it was, this is providential, but... It just struck me about two weeks ago, this is a great week to preach this text. And the reason I say that is because, and I want a show of hands here, how many of you already this month have sat in a room and have heard hundreds of names read out loud and have sat there while hundreds or thousands of people listen to many hundreds of names being read and you're like on edge of your seat, where is my son, where is my daughter, where is my cousin, my friend, my roommate, my nephew, my... I mean, we're, we're all about long lists of names this month, aren't we? Graduation's all about that. I was at graduation yesterday and our school's really small. We have a small private Christian high school, but we had 33 That was our senior class size. Some of you are like, wait, 333, 1300? No, 33 graduates that I got to teach this year. And uh, we got to see little little montages of each of them in their their early years growing up. And then we heard all their names as they came and got their diplomas. And uh, it's it's something that we care about. Now, here's why I start like that. Names matter because people matter. Names matter because people matter. And there is something about having your name being recognized in graduation for a legitimate accomplishment, having completed the assignments, having gotten your grades in, having completed all your courses, there is an appropriate way to honor and recognize those who have done something worthy of honor. And that's what May is all about, isn't it? Well, this chapter in Ezra is God saying in the loudest shout imaginable, and let me just footnote here, if Ezra 2 is not enough, 
You go, go read Nehemiah 7, it's almost exactly the same chapter. Again, almost word for word. There's a few different names, but it's basically the same chapter in Nehemiah 7 and Ezra 2. This 70 plus verses in Nehemiah, 70 verses in Ezra of names. Why is this here? Here's why. This, this really is, I'm not, I don't want to exaggerate. I, this, this really is a moving thing. You, you say it doesn't seem moving. There's something moving here. God is saying that he cares about every individual in the people of God. God is saying that he thinks about and takes note of everyone among his people. And when these 50,000 or so decided, remember we talked a couple weeks ago, making that long journey back, remember it took four months, according to Ezra, takes four months to make this journey, it's like a thousand miles, a lot of it is walking, there are a lot of thieves along the way, you can get robbed, you can get beaten, you can get killed. They're going from security, they actually had security in Babylon, Remember, God said plant, house, plant vineyards, build houses, you know, flourish, make the city flourish. They were doing okay in Babylon, economically, it seems. You're giving up all of that security. You're going on a thousand-mile journey where you could be attacked or you could die or all kinds of things could happen. Some women are probably pregnant. You've got young children. You've got older men. You've got older couples. That's, that's a big deal to, to make this journey back. It takes four months, and you get back, and what do you find? You know what you're going to find. You're going to find a destroyed city with no walls of security, no temple, it's all in rubble, and you've got to begin a years-long, a decades-long process of beginning to rebuild this place. And here's what God tells us in Ezra chapter 2. God remembers and takes note of everyone involved down to their names. God actually cares about all of His people. So let's begin today uh, just by reading. I'm going to read the first couple of verses, and we'll take these in por portions as we go. So Nehemiah chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those uh, exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. Now, if you look here, look back at the end of chapter 1, and let me remind you of one more person, this man Sheshbazar. Uh, look at verse 11 of chapter 1. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So amongst all those who are leading the charge, if you add up the number with Sheshbazar and the other 11 listed, you have 12 individuals listed. And virtually every commentator says what I think is true here. I don't think that the number of 12 leaders is an accident. I think that God is signaling what? The 12 tribes. This is representative of God's people, and God is beginning to restore His people again. And what this book is all about is God bringing hope out of ashes. It's God bringing a future where there is no future conceivable. It's God rebuilding what seems impossible, and it's the God who is going to restore his people back to their place. Just a couple notes here. We're going to have to get somewhat technical today just with these names. The Nehemiah mentioned in verse 2 is not the Nehemiah of the book of Nehemiah. I say that because the Nehemiah from the book of Nehemiah does not show up for about 80 more years. He's not even born yet. That's not the Nehemiah of the book of Nehemiah. And uh, Mordecai, you may remember him from uh, the book of Esther, not the same guy either, okay? He hasn't come along yet either. So those names look familiar. They are not the, the, the individuals that we thought of. 
But I'm going to talk about two big leaders in this book, verse 2, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Now, these things can get confusing. The word Jeshua throughout this book, that is the same person from the book of Haggai and Zechariah who is called Joshua, okay, the high priest. It's the same man. He's called, spelled Jeshua here. Remember, it's the word Yeshua in the original, right? It's the name for Jesus in the original. So you have the word uh, here, Jeshua or Joshua. It's the same man. He's the high priest. And Zerubbabel, that name, Zerubbabel, means seed of Babylon or I was born in Babylon. That's what that means. I, I'm offspring of Babylon. I was born in exile. I was, I'm Zerubbabel. I was born in Babylon. And he is in the Davidic line. He, he is in the Davidic line. So hold your spot here and turn to the first chapter of your New Testament, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Hold your spot in Ezra. I just want to remind you here of something. If you look at Matthew 1, I'm not going to read the whole list here, but just read a few verses. Matthew 1, 1, first verse of the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and it goes from verse 2 to verse 6 down to, from Abraham to David. Look at the middle of verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and then it goes through Solomon, Rehoboam, and it goes down further, and look down at verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and it goes down the list all the way down to, look at verse, into verse 15, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So Zerubbabel is in the line of Jesus, right? He is a descendant of King David. And one of his distant ancestors will be Joseph, who will be the adoptive father of Jesus. So you see here the line of Christ is being traced out, even what you see in the book of Ezra. You can turn back to Ezra chapter 2. Let me add one other note here. This is just a striking thing. It took me some time to put this together because you have to trace several different verses that are confusing with names. But when you, look, when you, when you put it together, what you'll discover is um, Jeshua or Joshua... His great-great-grandfather is talked about. He was the man who, do you remember when Josiah was king, a young king, and Israel had not been following the Lord? It was Jeshua's great-great-grandfather who discovered the law of, the God, the law of God, remember, tucked away in the temple? It had been neglected for so long. And he says, hey, guys, I found something you might want to see. This is uh, God's law, God's word. And he reads it before the king, and the king weeps and repents. And the whole, th that whole generation saw a very different turning point because Jeshua's great-great-grandfather discovered the law of God in the temple. Now, let's look here starting in the middle of verse 2. I'm going to read from the middle of verse 2 down to verse 35. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Peras, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 775. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adinakam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Eter, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323, the sons of Jorah, 112, the sons of Hashem, 223, the sons of Gebar, 95. Now just pause. 
So far, we've been tracing lineage based on ancestry, based on distant fathers and their sons. Now, in verse 21, if you don't pay attention, it's hard to see this right away. Now they're going to give you names of people based on the hometown they were originally from. So if you're following it, you, he was doing their fathers and tracing down with father names. Now he's going to base them sons of or men of certain cities. And you'll recognize cities like Bethlehem and Jericho and things like that. So verse 21, we start with city ancestry. Verse 21, the sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of uh, Netophah, it's 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Aram, uh, Karaphira, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmash, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons, the sons of Migba, Migbish, uh, 100, Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Lod, Hated, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sinea, uh, 3,630. Now, this list here is fantastic. I love this part of the list. Because what they're going to do after this, you'll see if you have the ESV and other translations may do the same thing. Each paragraph following, you'll see each group is categorized. Verse 36, you've got the priests. Verse 40, the Levites. Verse 43, the temple servants. And on it goes. Do you understand the significance of the names that we just read in verses 2 through 35? These are people who are not priests, They're not Levites. They're not doorkeepers in the house of the Lord. They're not temple servants. They're not the sons of Solomon's servants. No, these are just the lay people. These are the the, the average everyday Israelite. They have no job in relationship to the temple. They're just everyday uh, parts of the people of God. And God here shows, and the whole book of Ezra shows, this is a major theme of the book. It's not mainly about Ezra. It's not mainly about Zerubbabel. It's not mainly about uh, Sheshbazar or Jeshua, or even Nehemiah, this book is showing you that the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city is done primarily by who? The everyday Christian, the everyday believer. And God includes here a long list of just the everyday Christian. And that is who God is emphasizing here. Now think about this. Throughout church history, it is the average Christian that is responsible for building the church, generally speaking. We've got superstar Christians, right? We've got Christians everyone's heard of. We've read their books. We benefit from their sermons online. And those people are wonderful blessings to the body of Christ. I am so thankful for so many uh, pastors and theologians who have gone before us and have become well-known. But God builds His church primarily through us, through just everyday common believers. I want you to turn with me to the New Testament. Hold your spot in Ezra. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Let's look at the New Testament church and see a similarity here. Acts chapter 8, I want to look at a couple of spots in the book of Acts. As you're turning there, you may remember, now think about this, 50,000 people return. Sounds like a large group. But if you put the 50,000 even in Sanford Stadium, it doesn't even fill up the stadium, right? It's about a little more than half of Sanford Stadium, and that's the whole people of God returning. It's not that big of a group compared to the world. Now, go forward. The time of Christ's death and resurrection in Jerusalem, how many followers of Jesus are there in the, in the upper room, essentially? 120. 
How big is the Roman Empire? It's millions of people. I mean, we're talking being outnumbered in an extraordinary way. If anyone looks insignificant, it is the 12 apostles. Well, Judas has been replaced, right, by Matthias. But the, 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 you have the 12 apostles, and you have 120 disciples, and that's it. It looks like the most insignificant group of people you can imagine. The 120 in the upper room for that month between, you know, for the, for the 50 days between Christ's death and Pentecost, that group does not look very promising. There are no, no news headlines about that little group in the, the hiding in that upper room. There, there are no, there are no, no one is doing national news coverage on those 120 people. You know what they're talking about in the news in those 50 days between Jesus' death and Pentecost? They're talking about what the Caesars are doing and what's, what's Caesar up to. They're talking about wars that might be going on. They're talking about things of that nature that feel momentous, that feel really noteworthy, newsworthy. And yet, you see, God's calculation of what's important in the world is very different than ours. Where is God focused between Christ's death and Pentecost? He's focused on 120 unpromising people. Doubting Thomas is there, right? Peter, who denied Jesus just a few weeks ago, is there, right? You've got the brother of Jesus who denied him until he appeared to him, resurrected James and others. This unpromising group is there gathered together, somewhat afraid of the Romans. And when God calculates what's important in history, he overlooks Caesar, right? He, he, he overlooks these massive wars that might have been going on and Roman conquests. He doesn't look at that primarily as the main thing. Where does God focus? He focuses on 120 ordinary people waiting for the Spirit's empowering. That's what he does. And then what happens? Peter gets up on Pentecost filled with the Spirit. They're all filled with the Spirit. He preaches. 3,000 people are converted. And you look into the future. Rome as an empire is only something you read about in your history books. Rome is gone as far as the empire is concerned, long gone. But the Christian worldview has taken over, right? And it far outlived and outnumbered. Uh, anything that could have been known or done by Rome. And so we see here in this chapter, you know, I just want to add something to that. When the 50,000 return, they've got to be struggling with discouragement. And yet God is saying, even though you are outnumbered, outranked humanly, and no one is probably taking much notice of you, I'm taking notice of you, and I'm going to use you to change human history because these 50,000 who begin to rebuild this city, they are going to form the line through which Jesus will be born. And the very temple, this is incredible, the very temple that they're about to rebuild in chapters 3 and following of Ezra, that very temple, yes, it gets, it gets made up even nicer by King Herod later, but it's the same temple, the second temple, that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, is going to walk into one day in the future. So Zechariah says in Zechariah 4, talking about this very time, do not despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. As they rebuild this humble little temple, and as they rebuild this humble little altar with a humble little group of people, you've got to understand God is at work doing mighty and glorious things in ways that we cannot at this time fathom. And here's what else the Lord does. Acts chapter 8. Remember Saul is endorsing the persecution, martyrdom of Stephen. Look at Acts 8.1, and Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Then devout men buried Stephen. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11, pick up at the same 
spot here in history, Acts 11, verse 19. Again, speaking of that same scattering from the persecution, this is Acts eleven nineteen. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And this church, this is the church that was formed in Syrian Antioch, this becomes the home church of Barnabas and later a man named Paul. And Paul is sent on his first missionary journey from the church in Syrian Antioch, this same church. Now, why am I talking about this? What I love about this story is, do you know know the names of the Christians who started the church? in Antioch, where Paul became a leader and was sent out on his missionary journeys that dominate the New Testament? Do you know the names of the people? The answer is no. We don't know the names of any of the Christians who did this. It just says, those who were scattered because of persecution preached the word in Antioch. We don't know the names of these Christians. I love this because what we're told is when the persecution started, the known Christians, the 12, they stayed in Jerusalem. They had to lead the church there. But these nameless Christians, at least as far as we see, the Christians, we don't even know their names, spread out, and they are the ones that started churches all around that area, that part of the world, including the church at Antioch that becomes one of the most crucial churches in all of the New Testament. The point of this is this. So much of what we do can feel small. Most of us are not going to go down in history as some great person in history, right? Most of us are not going to be remembered in that way. Much of our lives feel very small. The tasks that you are doing this week, this month, that you will be doing over the summer, as exciting or boring as some of them may be, they often feel very small. And sometimes you can wonder, is this really worth it, what I'm doing? You're working a job, you're helping people with certain things in their life, but your job, it doesn't feel that consequential Maybe you're not sharing the gospel in every single opportunity there. You're you're simply, you're helping them with whatever it is in their life, and you're trying to figure out what's the point of all that I'm doing. I want you to know, the Lord uses small things in big ways. The Lord uses words spoken in forgiveness and kindness at work. A word spoken about Jesus in a critical moment. Acts of care and concern for others. The Lord is there, and He sees, and He takes note. Jesus said, not a cup of cold water given in my name will lose its reward. So even though so much of our lives feel small and inconsequential, in God's timetable, that is not true. The way we invest in and love others, the words we speak around the dinner table, whether they are kind or cruel, the Lord sees, the Lord takes note, and they have eternal weight and consequence. Our words can encourage people and steer them towards Christ. Our words can be harsh and unloving and unforgiving and steer people away from Christ. But there is enormous power that the Lord uses to work through us. Uh, Life and death is in the power of the tongue, Proverbs says. We have tremendous influence. And I think so often we don't realize. It's like you you, you look at a still lake around sunset and you, you take a rock, right? And you throw it out in the middle of the lake and it hits out there. And what happens? You have those little ripples start forming and they go out. And it takes time. But eventually, if the rock is big enough, the ripples make it all the way to the shore, no matter how far you can throw that rock. And here's what I'm telling you. God is going to use your life 
if your life is devoted to him, he will use your life like that rock in that pond, and there will be a way in which you affect your children, you affect your roommates, students you're working around. You're going to have an impact on those people that is bigger than you probably realize. And if, it, if that impact is for good and for God's glory, those people who are impacted by you, guess what? They're going to impact other people that they are around. And just like the ripple effect of that rock, a word you said 10 years ago or a word you said 50 years ago could be in this very moment bearing fruit somewhere that you don't even know about. And God in his providence works the seemingly insignificant for his glory. There's a story, and I don't, I don't know the names right now. There was a Puritan. I think it was John Flavel was the Puritan, but he preached a sermon. And I don't remember the name of the man who heard it, but the, the man who heard it was at the time a five-year-old boy. He was in the audience. John Flavel was near the end of his life, preached a gospel sermon. And Flavel finished the sermon. The five-year-old boy left the service, was not converted, was not changed. In fact, according to his own words, as an adult man, this man lived to be 90 years old. I'm not making this up. This man lived to be 90 years old. He's a farmer, and uh, in his nine, around 90 years old, he was out working in the field one day, and he was thinking, I guess, about death. And he was still able to get around at this point in his life, and as he was outside working a little bit, he remembered the words of the sermon that he had heard 85 years earlier as a five-year-old. It's a true account. And he was convicted of his own sin in that moment as he thought about eternity, and he was led to Christ by John Flavel's sermon. John Flavel had been dead for nearly 70 years when his own sermon converted someone else. And here's the thing. Imagine John Flavel preaches that message and the five-year-old's there and the five-year-old's half paying attention and goes home and doesn't get converted. Could Flavel have wrongly assessed the impact of that message that day? Would he have any clue that there would be a ripple effect from that sermon that would reach someone in literally 80 plus years and lead to someone's conversion? No idea that that would happen. And certainly he would never dream that story of Flavel's sermon would be told to you right now today, hundreds of years after he's gone to heaven. No way he would ever think that. The Lord will use you in ways you simply could not guess to impact people in ways that you could not know. And that is one of the major lessons we get both from Ezra and also from the story here in Acts chapter uh, 11. Let's turn back to the book of Ezra. We're going to look here at some of the specific groups that come back, the priests and, and Levites. Look with me at verse uh, 36. And I'm going to read for a little bit here. Uh, Ezra chapter 2, verse 36. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emmer, uh, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. This is chapter 2, verse 40. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of uh, Hodaviah. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hattita, the sons of Shobiah, in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hashufa, the sons of Tabeoth, the sons of Keras, the sons of Siam, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamli, the sons of Hanan. The sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riah, the sons of Reason, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasiah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Munim, the sons of Nephishim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basileth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifah. This is hard. 
Verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Perudah, the sons of Jael, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatzel, the sons of Pachareth, Hazabim. I think that's close. And the sons of Amy. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Just a quick word here. The, the, um, the, the Levites, so... What's the difference between a priest and a Levite? They're all descended from the tribe of Levi. Uh, the difference is priests are descended from Aaron, which is like a, okay, so if Levi is the, the father of the Levites, Aaron is underneath Levi. So not every Levite is descended from Aaron. But th- those who are descended from Aaron, those would be the priests. But anyone descended from Levi would be um, a, a Levite. So they are not identical groups here, but they would help with all that was involved with the temple. Why do you need them? Why do you need them? It is vital. For nearly 70 years, the people of God have not had animal sacrifice. The daily atonement for sin, the yearly atonement for sin was not there. And so why do we need to have the Levites and the priests and the gatekeepers and the temple servants clearly marked off and their lineage known because we must have atonement for sin? Obviously, animal atonement was not the final answer. We all know this. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But these were precursors and foreshadowings of Jesus, and we need, we must have the temple. We will see soon in the coming week that the first thing they start to rebuild when they get back into the city, think about this, it's not the wall. That's what I would have voted for. We we need safety. People want to hurt us, you'll see. Let's rebuild the wall first. Let's get Nehemiah out here. Let's rebuild the wall, and then we can rebuild the temple later. No, what's the first thing they do? They leave the walls in ruins, and they go straight and rebuild the altar. We must have sacrifice for sin. That's that's more important than our safety. We need a lamb. We, We need animal sacrifice. More important than city safety and walls. We must have atonement for sin. And so we see here our need for Jesus. I know we know the gospel in this room. I know our church knows the gospel. I don't care if you've heard this a thousand times. I want you to hear this and let it be fresh on you. I'm just going to present the gospel as briefly as I can. Just, just listen. God is a holy God, and we have sinned against that holy God many, many times. We have built our life around creation, and we have neglected creator, and we have idolized his world. And he is righteous in his judgment, and he owes us punishment. If you break the law of the land, you get punishment. If you break the law of the creator of the universe, you get punishment. And God is just, and he will not overlook sin. Sin must be punished. It must be atoned for. And God would be perfectly just and righteous to end all of our lives and to cast all of us into eternal perdition, into the lake of fire. But God loves sinners. And so he sent his son to bear the weight of our sin on the cross, taking God's wrath for any and all who will simply turn from sin and self and trust in Jesus' finished work, and we can be counted righteous in Christ and forgiven. We need the true high priest, not Aaron, but Jesus himself. And the gatekeepers are mentioned here. We we know Psalm 8410, don't we? Better, remember, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Even a humble job in the church of God is far infinitely more worthy than a so-called high position amongst the wicked. So often we just don't see it that way. 
humble service. I mean, just, I'm not going to embarrass people here. The last few weeks, we've had people making sure the air conditioning is running in this room because it's been having major issues. We've had air conditioning problems in all three buildings. Uh, Ian and many others, uh, Billy Dudley, uh, I know the Woodards, and Jared Smith. We've had people outside sweating in the heat, sitting outside during our service. It's just sitting out there the whole time. When the air conditioning cuts off, they restart it. Better to be the doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. It, it is a tremendous gift from all the ways in which our, people in our church serve in ways that are often unnoticed, that are almost invisible. I, I know more about them than some of you do just because I hear about it. But man, there, there are people working on our website doing things that take many, many hours and days and weeks that often don't even go noticed. There are people who work on our live stream and our slides every single Sunday and 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 have to deal with the stress of having to do that every week. And people sit back there and do that in our Sunday school and on and on. There are so many ways in which people serve in our nursery. I have three children. I know changing diapers is not necessarily what I would love to do every moment of the day, but there are people who choose uh, just week in and week out to serve over there and often go completely unnoticed by others. But I want you to know the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and the Lord does not forget. Those are things that are written down by God and are remembered by him. Even the, the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants and the doorkeepers are taken note of and their names are recorded because God cares about those who care about his church. Let's move here toward a conclusion. I'm going to read the last verses. You know what, before I do that, I, I almost left something out. Just read this from 1 Corinthians 12. You, you know this text. The eye cannot say to the hand, what? I have no need of you. Nor, again, can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, a local church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. All right, now we'll move toward a conclusion here. Verses 59 to 60, uh, 67. Verse 59 of Ezra 2. The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsham, Cherub, uh, Adon, and Emer, though they could not, now listen, they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. They had no genealogical record. Verse 60, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 654, also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of uh, Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers, their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Just a quick word, I know you're, you're just dying to know what the Urim and Thummim are. Don't you want an extra minute on the Urim and Thummim? 
Okay, I'm gonna take that as an overwhelming yes that you do. So just a quick word about what, what, what is that? So here's the idea. These people could not prove that they were uh, genetically descended from Israel. They couldn't prove it. They, the records were lost in exile for some of these families. They couldn't prove. They, they thought they were priests. They couldn't prove it. Others thought they were other, uh, of other descendancy. They couldn't prove it. So they were to wait until the priests should consult Urim and Thummim. Just a quick word. Exodus 28 verse 30. Don't have to turn there. Uh, it's talking about the high priest. In the breastplate of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's hearts. So they would literally go on his chest right here when he was going to go into the most holy place. When he goes in before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people on his heart before the Lord. And then 1 Samuel 14, 41 says this, Saul said, O Lord, a God of Israel, why have you not answered me this day? If this guilt is upon me by my son Jonathan of Israel, give Urim. But if guilt is on your people, give Thummim. Okay, what that means is, the Urim and Thummim, most people think, were a black and white stone of the same shape, and that these would go inside uh, this little box, this little place on the high priest's chest, right over the high priest's heart. And the idea was this. When you wanted to know an answer from God, you would ask God for the answer as a yes or no sort of thing, or a one or the other thing, and you would reach in, and whichever one you pulled out, that was God's answer. You either pull out Urim, or you pull out Thummim, and the one was, God's either saying yes or no, this or that. And so, these people would have consulted the genealogical records to see if they were truly part of God's people. Well, let me take you to one last text. Let's go to the New Testament. You can leave Ezra. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 6. I know it's the middle of a sentence. Galatians 3, verse 6. It says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see why I'm going here? How do we prove that we are part of the people of God in the new covenant era? It's not because of our genealogy. We don't say, hey, I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm from this particular tribe, that, therefore I'm... No, no, that's not what we're doing. How do we prove that we are sons and daughters of Abraham? We must have the faith of our father, Abraham. It says, those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Our genealogical record is not a literal genealogy. It's do we have the same faith that Abraham had? Saving faith in Christ. If we have saving faith in Christ, we don't need a list of genealogy. What we need is the, the same kind of uh, spiritual faith that, that Abraham himself exemplified. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, for there is neither Jew nor Greek. Not about genealogy. Uh, there is neither male, slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So my last plea is this. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you can be part of the people of God, not based on your ancestry, not based on genealogy, not because your parents were missionaries or pastor or whatever it was. No, you, you can be part of the people of God by putting your faith in the finished work of Jesus 
and becoming a true child of God. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would see that you care about those of us who feel most insignificant. And God, a cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus will never lose its reward. Every diaper that is changed out of love for you, love for our child, every night of devotions read to our kids when you wonder how much is going through and being understood, all the prayers that we pray for lost loved ones and friends and coworkers and students that we care about so much, all those prayers, God, are not lost on you. They are not forgotten by you. Prayers for justice and for your righteousness to be known, those prayers are not meaningless. They are not forgotten. No act done in faith in Christ and out of love to God is insignificant. It's not forgotten. In the annals of heaven, our names are written in the book of life, and that is the most important thing that could be true of us. So I pray we would rejoice in that security. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may know of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who started as a physician and then became a pastor and died a number of decades ago in the London area. And this is what was written about Lloyd-Jones. I'm about to read the text he's going to quote. It's from Luke 10. It says, Rejoice not uh, that the spirits are subjected to you in my name, but rejoice rather that your name is written in heaven. And this is what he said on his deathbed about that text. The story is told of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most influential preachers of the 20th century. When he was dying of cancer, one of his friends and former associates asked him, in effect, how are you managing to bear up? You have been accustomed to preaching several times a week. You have begun important Christian enterprises. Your influence has extended through tapes and books to Christians on five different continents. And now you have been put on the shelf. You're reduced to sitting quietly, sometimes managing a little editing, I am not so much asking, therefore, how you are coping with the disease itself. Rather, how are you coping with the stress of being out of the swim of things? And Lloyd-Jones responded with the words of Luke 10, 20, which I'm about to read for you. So let's bow our heads together, and I'll read that text. In the same hour, uh, these 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to him, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us that you would help us to find our deepest joy in life, not in career success, not in ministry success, not in how well our children turn out or our grades end up or what college we get into or what scholarship we achieve or how much money we've made. God, when things are going really well, when the spirits are subject to us in your name, God, I pray we would not most fundamentally rejoice in that. Because that can be here today and gone tomorrow, as Lloyd-Jones saw at the end of his life. God, instead, help us to say, let us rejoice that our names are written in the only place that matters. Our names are written in heaven. 
and that our names are in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.